Christ has risen. He is risen Christ has risen. He is risen Christ is risen. He is risen and all God's people said, Amen. Welcome to Disciples Church. We are delighted to have you here uh, for Easter Sunday, for Resurrection Sunday, the day that we remember the resurrection and, and the fact that we serve a living Savior. It's particularly fun for us because this is our first Sunday morning together, so if you're new to us, uh, welcome. Uh, We don't know what to expect. This is our first time doing this on a Sunday, so you never know how things will go, but we are glad that you joined us, and we are glad that you joined us on a Sunday where we are very specifically remembering and reminding ourselves that our Christ is risen. And there are so many other things this time of year that can draw our attention away, and things that are not inherently wrong. I mean, I mean, good things uh, inherently. I mean, for, for many of us, what we do for Easter has as much to do with our family traditions and our, our backgrounds, our experiences, as it does with Resurrection Sunday itself. I mean, so for many of you, you've got your own traditions and you've got your own things. And so yesterday, my family got together, me and my siblings that live in this area uh, and their kids, and we got together and we did an Easter egg hunt. That's one of the things that we've been doing over the past several years. And so it's fun with kids. But the problem is then to try to shift your children's mindset from candy to Jesus. Like That's a tough transition to make. So I asked my four-year-old this morning, I said, hey, buddy, what do we celebrate Easter for? And he said, well, Easter is when we remember that Jesus died. And I said, well, that's good, but what else do we remember about Easter? And he says, well, that's when Jesus, that's when Jesus rose again. I thought, amen, that's awesome. Let's try it on kid number two. <laughs> so I go to my two-year-old. Hey, Harvey, what, what is Easter about? And he stopped for a moment, and then he said, Halloween candy. <laughs> Neither of those words are correct, but we... Uh, or one for two with our children, so we'll, we'll take it, we'll take it. But the reason we are here, and make no mistake about it, the reason we are here is because we believe that Jesus Christ is God. We believe that He is God, and we believe that He came to earth, that He pursued mankind, that He chased us down in the middle of our sin, in the middle of our enmity, our warring against Him, that He came after us to pursue us and to love us and to pour out and lavish His grace on us. And we also believe that Jesus Christ literally died, that He was murdered dead in the ground. But we believe that the story did not end there. That God had the final word as it pertains to death. And we believe that three days later, Jesus rose again. We believe that the grave could not hold him. That death did not receive the last word. We believe that Jesus Christ lives. And what that means is that in some sense or another, what you cannot do is take the story of Jesus Christ, take the resurrection story, take Easter. You cannot just take it as a nice story or a cultural artifact. You cannot take the Easter story and continue to live your life unaffected by it. Because Jesus Christ, by His very nature, demands a response. You don't get to make the kinds of claims that Jesus Christ made. You don't get to live the kind of life that He lived, die the death that He died, and presumably, as we would hold, rise from the dead the way that He did, and have that go unaffected in your life. If what He said is true, it changes everything. That everything is turned on its head. And so either your worship and your praise and your very life belong to Jesus Christ, 
because what he did and said is actually true, or he's a fraud, and what he deserves is our ridicule and our criticism. But what you can't do is take the nice story of Easter and continue on unaffected. So the question before us this morning is, what do you do with Jesus? And the reading that we heard earlier, uh, we heard the story of these, uh, of these inhabitants of Jerusalem, in particular these two women who rose up early in the morning to go see where Jesus was buried. I mean, this was Mary, this was the, the, the two Marys they're called. Uh, these are disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus. These are people who loved and devoted their lives to following Jesus Christ. And, and they wake up early in the morning to see what's going on with their Savior, to pour ointment and perfumes on his dead body. See, even they, having been told about the promise of his resurrection, were not expecting what was about to happen. But realize as well that the other inhabitants of Jerusalem did not all have the same opinion of this man called Jesus. Not everyone that was there was enamored with these events. There were people that were apathetic towards Christ. They went on unaffected by his death. They had the mindset that, look, everything in in life has its season. This was just this man's time to die. That's yesterday's news. Let's just keep moving forward with life. There were others who not only weren't followers of Jesus Christ and not only were apathetic to him, but they were actually antagonists towards him. They were glad that he was dead. Good, this man who claimed to be God, this man who was a traitor to the crown of Caesar, this man who was committing heresy against what they understood to be the one true and right God, good, he's dead. He got what he deserved. Good riddance to the instigator. And there were countless others who began to wonder, who is this Christ? Who is this Jesus who claimed be God? Who is this Jesus who, st- who stood there proclaiming the kingdom of God being at hand, but later was crucified on a cross, nails in his hands and feet, brutalized and tortured? And so when the women arrived that morning, they found the stone had been moved. They found Jesus' body was gone. And the account that we're going to discuss this morning picks up at that point with two other followers. Luke 24, beginning in verse 13, says this, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now, I want to give a quick aside here because there is something that is so easy to read over in this account that in our Western mindset, we don't give it any attention. Perhaps the most interesting portion of this particular passage is easy to overlook. Because in this story, we're introduced to a man. In verse 18, we find out his name is Cleopas and another disciple. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because in this time, in ancient culture, and remember the Bible's written about 2,000 years ago, that at this time when someone's proper name was given, it was given in this sort of an account because Luke, the author, had actually had an interchange with this man. He'd actually had a conversation with this man named Cleopas. I mean, the Bible does this all the time. We see proper names popping up in places that we wouldn't expect to see them. So in Luke 23, in the crucifixion account, we're told uh, of a man named Simon who was uh, pulled into assisting Christ to carry the cross up the hill to Golgotha. We're told that his name was Simon, that he was of the city called Cyrene. And we're told in Mark's account that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, why in the world would all that detail be in there? 
It's in there because the author does not want you to miss that this is actual historical fact. He's saying, look, I've done the research. I've talked to the people that were there. I've spoken to the eyewitnesses, and this is what I have found. And so what he was telling the readers and what he was telling the people of the time is, look, if you don't believe my account of what happened with Jesus Christ, go talk to these other people. Go talk to Simon who helped Christ carry the cross up the hill. Go talk to Malchus, the high priest's servant, who had his ear cut off by Peter, and Jesus miraculously reattached it. Go talk to this man named Cleopas, who ran into Jesus Christ on the road to Emmaus. If you want to know what is true, what is real, have conversations with these people. Because in these historical accounts, to use a proper name was to give an eyewitness. Luke, to the best of his ability, is giving us a footnote. He's letting us know that he talked to Cleopas directly, that this isn't some legend. That the resurrection is not mere fairy tale, but that this is factually verifiable. And the reason, again, that this is important is because if the resurrection happened, if this is true, then we can believe with confidence that all of the rest of the Bible is true. And if this story is a fake, if it's false, if it's a hoax, then we should believe none of it. But not only does he give us the factual basis for the resurrection, Luke doesn't end there. He also gives us the personal impact on these two particular men. Because we know some things about Cleopas, and in many ways he exemplifies the struggle of modern people. He exemplifies the struggle of people like us to believe in a God. And I would guess, based on the number of people that are here this morning, there are many people who, who don't know if there is a God at all. You may, you may believe that there is a God, but that he doesn't care about us or that he's not involved in our lives in any meaningful way. You may believe that there is a God and that Jesus Christ is real, but that he's far away and that he's distant, that it's impossible to know him and have a relationship with him. Or you may be a, be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. You may have had a relationship with him for years. But put yourselves for a moment in the shoes of this man named Cleopas. Because you need to feel the weight of the confusion in his life. I mean, no doubt these two men had followed, at least from a distance, they had followed the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ. And we know that because he's going to go on and tell us about those particular instances. But Cleus and his counterpart on the road to Emmaus were at least observers of Jesus. They were intrigued by who this man claimed to be. And maybe they had seen him perform miracles, and maybe they were there that day when Jesus Christ fed the 5,000, and, and maybe they were there when he preached the sermons, but their hope for the future, their hope for the redemption of their nation, Israel, for their ethnic heritage, which meant so much to them, their hope for the dawn of God's kingdom was being drawn into this man named Christ. And they at least thought of him as a potential political leader who'd been killed. Perhaps they'd even seen his triumphal entry a week earlier as he entered into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey with thousands of people crowding around, waving palm branches and their coats in the air and shouting, Hosanna, which literally means, save us. And perhaps their emotions were stirred as they thought about the fact that this very man, Jesus, might be the answers to their prayers, that maybe he was the deliverer for which they had longed. But to whatever extent they had put their hopes, their national pride, their ethnic heritage, their political freedom 
into Jesus Christ. At this point, they find themselves at the very least confused. And at worst, in full-out despair. Because after the Last Supper, Jesus Christ was betrayed. He was tortured. He was crucified. And he was killed. And as Jesus' naked, dead body hung on a tree, these two men were dumbstruck. I thought maybe he was the one. But now look. So they're leaving the city. This is three days after the death of Christ. They've just heard the news that two women had gone to the tomb to find Jesus, to pour perfume on his body, but that Jesus Christ wasn't there, that his stone to the tomb had been rolled away, that his body was gone. And so they're beginning this conversation, and they're, they're in the midst of their haze, their confusion, their depression, their, their uncertainty. See, these are not people, and here's what I want you to understand about these two characters today. These are not people who were longing for any excuse to proclaim the risen Christ. These were not diehard fans of Jesus. These were not people who were going to be caught up in some sort of scam to make it as though Jesus seemed as though he was the real Savior or Messiah. These were men who were genuinely unsure of what to believe about any of this. This was not the reaction of people who were longing to believe. This was the reaction of people who by default had doubt. They're people in many ways like us. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Jesus has risen from the dead. We heard that account this morning. He appears on the road with them. He walks up to them in verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now notice what it says there. It didn't didn't say that they didn't recognize him. It says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That for some reason, in, in Christ's power, in his knowledge, in his wisdom, that he was keeping his identity from them. And, and there's, a, there's an important reason that we understand this. Because if they knew who Jesus was, if they were even there on the day of his crucifixion, then presumably they would recognize immediately the person called Christ. But in Jesus' wisdom and his power, he didn't reveal himself to them yet. And the reminder for us is that none of us know Jesus Christ unless he reveals himself. So for many of you, you may have grown up in Christian homes. You may have gone to church on Christmas and Easter. You may have grown up hearing the stories of the Bible. Maybe you'd heard the word. Maybe you read the Bible. Maybe you were even a member of a church. But it wasn't until years later that you actually knew Christ for yourself. I mean, that's, that's my story. My dad was a pastor of a church, and I'd, from the earliest moments of my life, from the, literally the earliest recollections that I have are in that church building. And I remember going to Sunday school, and I remember hearing the stories, and I remember watching the teachers put the flannel graph up on the board, and I remember, I remember uh, having, having the cookies and the watered-down Kool-Aid at Vacation Bible School, and I remember all of those things, Right? All of these stories about who Jesus Christ was. And if you would have asked me when I was growing up, do you know Jesus? I absolutely would have said yes to you. But there was a lack of a relationship in my heart. I knew all about him, but I did not know him. And it wasn't until years later when I was in college that I actually came to know Jesus Christ for myself. Well, what happened? 
Why did God do that? Well, I'm, I'm thinking that I probably won't know the actual reason as to why he worked the way he did until I see him in glory, but here's my speculation. My speculation is that growing up, my heart was so full of religion. It was so full of thinking that I could try to accomplish for myself what only Jesus Christ could accomplish on my behalf, that I needed to get to the point of realizing that there was nothing I could do to save myself before Christ finally came and said, now you get it. See, perhaps he's kept you from understanding or he did keep you from understanding until a time where it would be abundantly clear that it was him doing a work in you and not you doing a work in yourself. But for whatever reason, Jesus veiled himself from these men. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is the conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? Jesus says, as I approached you, it looked like you guys were deep in conversation. It looked even like you were distressed. Can I ask what it is that you happen to be talking about? And the response of Cleopas in this moment is exactly the right one. He's saying, are you kidding me? Do you know nothing of what's been happening over these last three days? Have you not heard the news? You're coming from Jerusalem. How do you not know this? We're talking about what everyone is talking about. And I love the response of Jesus, because at least in my mind's eye, he's got a little bit of a smirk. And he says, what's everyone talking about? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Cleopas is saying, look, we thought Jesus was the Messiah, but he was beaten, he was tortured, he was killed, he was buried. It's been three days since his death. We had hoped that he was the one. And he goes on to say, and and if that wasn't enough, we know people who went to care for his body and they arrived and his body was gone. Now think about this. How many times had the disciples and followers of Christ, and by necessity, how many times had those on the outskirts, those on the fringes, heard the promise that, that, uh, that at least on three separate occasions, Jesus Christ himself had prophesied that he would be killed and would raise again after three days? And these people show up at the tomb on the third day, the body is gone, and their first thought is anger because they can't pour, they can't pour perfume over his dead body. Now, why is that their thought? It's their thought because they know what we all know. Normal people, dead people, don't walk out of tombs. Luke here is giving us an insight that even 2,000 years, we do not get to take the arrogant attitude of dismissing these people as antiquated or archaic. We do not get to dismiss them as being pre-scientific or lacking the, the, the understanding 
that we sophisticated people hold today. No, he's saying these people reacted exactly the way that you and I would have reacted. Dead people don't get up and walk. They don't leave tombs. They don't come back. Certainly not after three days. So they were displaying in this moment a past tense faith. Look at the language they use. It's language of despair and confusion. They say, he was, he had, we'd hoped, perhaps. It was a faith that had been shattered. But it was a faith built on their presumption of what Jesus Christ ought to do. See, these are people who are disillusioned with God. And perhaps like many in this room, they're not only disillusioned with God, they're disillusioned with the church, they're disillusioned with faith, they're disillusioned with belief. These are people who, who thought at various points, much like we did, man, I, at some point I'm going to find the meaning of my life. And so maybe you went to college thinking that if you got that degree, if you if you attain that certificate, if you did that thing to end up in the field that you wanted to end up with, maybe that was your ticket. Maybe that's the thing that would bring you satisfaction and meaning. And maybe you've looked for it in a relationship. If I just found the right person, if I found someone that I could just spend the rest of my life with, maybe then I'd be really happy. And maybe when you never found that person, or maybe when that person broke your heart, you turn to the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. See, anyone who's lived has experienced something like this. You begin to look back, and you begin to wonder what you've been doing. And this is what Cleopas and his counterpart experienced. As they walked to Emmaus, they were leaving only disappointment and heartache behind. And listen, the resurrection is ridiculous until Jesus is standing with you on the road. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, them to, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He was exposing to them the deficiency of their own thinking. They had read the Bible and they had read the Old Testament, but they were reading it through such a particular lens that they were missing the whole point. And this word all that's used here is an important one. He's saying he's explaining all of the scripture. These men were only ready to accept the promises that directly pertain to them. They were only ready to accept the promises that assured Israel's freedom and flourishing, its independence and victory. But Jesus refused to allow them to proof text. And what he did and said is he began in Genesis and began working his way through all of these books, through the law, through the prophets, and he's showing them things that they've never seen before. He's pointing to different prophecies about the Messiah and saying, this is why the Messiah had to die. This is why he had to go to the cross. That in their reading of the Bible, they had failed to see that it was all about him. This is what Jesus was referencing in Luke 18, 31, where it says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But the disciples, were told, understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. See, the truth had been in front of them the whole time, but without the Holy Spirit's enlightenment of their hearts, they had no understanding of what they were seeing. So Jesus had told his followers throughout his ministry, throughout his life, that the road to the restoration of his glory was paved with suffering. It's the reminder that there is no Easter without Good Friday. So Jesus explains to Cleopas everything in the Bible about the Christ. And he says, don't you understand that if it was Adam's sin that condemned all of humanity, that the Messiah likewise would have to die and rise again to bring life to those who believe in him. And then look what happened. Verse 28. They're still not knowing who he is, but now they're Their hearts have begun to open to the truth of the gospel. And it says this, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Verse 31 says, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. So they invite him into dinner. They see Jesus, not knowing who he is, obviously, but they're inviting this man who they don't know to come in for dinner. Come spend the evening. It's late already. Come, Come eat with us. And after inviting him in, they have so much respect and regard for this man who's just explained scripture to them. That they say in this moment, would you, would you bless the dinner for us? And as Jesus is breaking the bread, something clicks. They recognize him for who he is. And here's what I love about this. We don't know what it was that triggered them in that moment, but this wasn't communion This wasn't a sacred practice. This wasn't a holy feast. This was Jesus Christ revealing himself to the people in the ordinary, everyday elements of their lives. And as he so often does, Jesus used the ordinary to confound these men. So maybe when they saw him breaking the bread... Their mind went back to the predictions of the Old Testament. Or maybe that's when they noticed the nail prints in his hands. But whatever it was, we're told that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And in an instant, he vanished from their sight. Verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? While he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures... And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, seven miles back the way that they had just come. 
And they rose the same hour and returned. And they found the eleven and those that were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as dark and as somber and as confusing as that seven-mile walk had been out of the city of Jerusalem, can you imagine how different it was as they were running the seven miles back? Notice it says the same hour. They had just broken bread. They were just about to sit down for dinner. They were just about to spend the night in their home. And the same hour they run back to find the disciples. See, what power did the resurrection have that changed them so fundamentally? What was it about the resurrection that was different? And a friend that illustrated it this way. So just imagine that, that you have an unknown, incurable disease. Imagine that you've been diagnosed with something and you go to see the doctors and they don't know what it is. They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to help you, but they can't find, they can't find the cure in time and you die. And imagine that just three days later, they discover the cure to the illness that killed you. And so they go into the morgue and they pull out your dead body and they inject that serum, that cure, into your body and you're all fine, right? No, of course not. You're still dead. See, spiritually, we are stillborn. We were born into this world dead spiritually. Our soul was dead in trespasses and sins, is what we're told. And the cross provided the cure for your sin. It brought the forgiveness that only Jesus Christ himself could bring into your life. It removed the penalty and the wrath of sin. That everything you've ever done wrong in your life, every sin you've ever committed, every law that you've broken, every way that you've tried to live on the throne of your own life, where you have tried to live in ignorance of who God demands himself to be in your life, every single instance of that is a violation of the law of God. Every single instance of that deserves hell. The absence of God's presence and the punishment for it. But Jesus Christ took all of that on himself at the cross. The cure was provided. But it was the resurrection that brought the life into what was once dead. It was the guarantee that what had previously given you a death sentence would never take your life. And so through the death and resurrection of Christ, we were released from the penalty of sin. We're in the process of being delivered from the power of sin, and someday we will be free from the very presence of sin. And if the resurrection was just the undoing, or rather the resurrection was not just the undoing of death, it was the death of death. It was the final blow to death. I've had conversations with some over the years who, who I think in a well-intentioned manner say things like, wouldn't it be great if we could just do away with the dogma of Scripture? Wouldn't it be great if we could just do away with the doctrine of the Word of God? 
and just take the teachings of Jesus as instructive. And what they're really looking for is is an esoteric experience. They want something that is uniquely their own. They want a God in their life the way that they define that God to be. They want a belief system that is not open to the challenge of anybody else's thought or opinion, much, much less a book that was written 2,000 years ago. But my answer to that question, wouldn't it be great if there was no doctrine, if there was no dogma, if there wasn't a book that defined our belief? My answer to that is inevitably no. That would be terrible. Because redemptive history would have been stopped in its tracks. Salvation would have been lost. The resurrection would have been lost. New life in Christ would have been lost. In which Jesus, and we would have been left in a world in which Jesus was buried and where we are left wondering alongside Cleopas, is this all there is? Teachings on how to live? Good morals? Is that really all we have? But their experience was far more intense than that. And notice what they say when Jesus left. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? Now what was different? They already knew the scriptures previously. I mean, these are Jewish men. They had been educated. They knew their Bibles well. They had sat in in temple classes, they had sat at the feet of rabbis, their parents had opened up the Torah for them, had explained everything they knew to explain to their children. I mean, these men knew the Bible well, so what was different? What was different is that in this moment they believed. They embraced the person of the Messiah. They understood the cost of the redemption, the power of the resurrection, and it changed everything. Cleopas went from disappointment and confusion, thinking that Jesus was was not actually the one who could bring redemption, to absolute ecstasy, realizing that Jesus had already accomplished for him everything that needed to be done for his redemption. And so regardless of where you find yourself in this room today, the invitation for you is to see Christ resurrected. So believers... There may be some, maybe many of you, who need to know that today, Jesus Christ is risen. Who need to believe that today? That he has not left you in the power of your own strength to figure out your life, to make your ends meet, to bring your own satisfaction, but that he is the ends. He is the satisfaction. He is the joy. And if you're an unbeliever here, Maybe you know the story, maybe you don't. But regardless of where you fall, maybe you're in here and you say, well, I may know about Jesus, but I don't know him the way that Cleopas knew him. My heart wasn't lit ablaze at the idea of communing with the Savior. So if you're an unbeliever, let me just say this. There is no sure and certain hope of life built on anything other than him. If your hope is built or if your joy is dependent on anything else in this world, no matter how great that thing is, it will not and it cannot last. 
So to the extent that your hope is in another person, they cannot fulfill the way Jesus can. And to the extent that you have a happy life full of prosperity, full of good health, the end of that life without Christ is still death. So the invitation for all of us is to throw yourself on the one whose name is resurrection. To believe that God loved you so deeply and so passionately that he came into the darkness of this world, lived the perfect life that you and I could never live, died the death that you and I deserved for our sin and rebellion against God, and that he rose from the dead, showing his power over death and hell and the grave to bring new life into those who are spiritually unable to respond. That is the hope we declare at Easter. That's the reason why every week we celebrate the resurrection. It's our hope in this life and in the next. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the promise that since you're risen, those who know you will rise as well. And God, I pray that you would not allow any of us to just walk away from this morning thinking of the resurrection as a fable or a fairy tale. But God, in it, would we see a Savior so loving that he came and was willing to die? Would we see a God so powerful that the grave couldn't hold him? And like the depressed disciples on the road to Emmaus, would our eyes be open to your word and your person? Would we wonder at your glory and your majesty? And would we be inexorably changed? God, would you have your way in our hearts and help us to see that nothing in this life satisfies and nothing in this life brings the joy that you and you alone can bring. Nothing in this life can promise life. So God, do in us in this morning what we're unable to do for ourselves. And it's in your name we pray.